Well, hey, brothers, this is Didact with another episode of Domain Query, Rise of the Machines. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers from the site. A very warm welcome to all of my subscribers on Podbean. Uh, as always, please make sure, if you have not done so already, to subscribe to both the site and the podcast. That way you will never miss a new post, another podcast upload, or anything else of importance as we go through this rather crazy world we all live in. Today's domain query has to do with a short question from longtime reader in front of the site, Randall E6. And he wrote in to ask, here's an admittedly unusual, admittedly, admittedly, no, admittedly, well, spelling error, unusual domain query. Was Dune correct that mankind will either have to place limits upon AI and its sister technologies or outright prohibit them altogether? Right. There are a number of different layers to unpack here. I mean, we're basically going deep into the fields of uh, what it means to be intelligent, what it means to have sentience, and whether or not machines can ever rise up and displace humans. So it's a complex question, complex and challenging in many ways. But I think the short answer is for the moment, we're probably safe. Now, for those of you who are fans of Frank Herbert's Dune, you'll recognize immediately where the Dune reference itself comes from. If you have read Dune repeatedly, and I have many times, I consider it to be the greatest sci-fi novel ever written of any genre within science fiction. It is the best by far. Then you will be familiar with the concept known as the Butlerian Jihad. Now, within the Duneverse, the Butlerian Jihad is not really referenced much in the original six books that Frank Herbert wrote. It's kind of hinted at in passing using vague references about some great cataclysmic war in which humanity fought against thinking machines. And the result of that war was a situation in which humanity banned outright upon pain of death, the development and usage of thinking machines, sentient machines of any kind. And that is where this obsession with mentats came from. The whole plot of the Dune universe, at least for the first book, really came down to this, the creation of a super mentat known as the Kwisatz Haderach. Now, what is a mentat? It's a, essentially a human supercomputer. A human who can run lines of computation and thought at basically computer speeds and process enormous volumes of data to the point where he can come up with astonishing conclusions of seemingly you know, prescient, almost prescient uh, wisdom. And the reason why this became necessary was because getting rid of computers that could think meant the ability that humans used to have to process enormous volumes of data just went away. So for some tens of thousands of years later, about 10,000 years later, the, uh, basically the, 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 men, the, the kind of evolution of mentats under the, the overarching guidance of the Bene Gesserit uh, school of I don't know what you'd call them exactly, witches or 
genetic experimenters or what have you, were tried to create a super mentat, a, a, uh, a supercomputer, a, a living supercomputer so powerful that he could literally foresee all possible futures and could understand exactly where humanity was heading because the overarching premise of Dune, of, of the Dune series under Frank Herbert, is that there is some sort of great impending doom out there waiting to engulf humanity. And these, the Kwisatz Haderach was going to be uh, humanity's source of salvation, that he would be able to foresee the oncoming doom and figure out how to stop it, how to prevent it. It's all for the good of the species, you understand. So if, you, if you've read the original six novels, you'll know about these aspects of, uh, of the Dune verse. Now, Brian, uh, Frank Herbert died before he could really fill in all the gaps of the backstory. His son, Brian Herbert, unfortunately decided to pick up where his father had left off and started collaborations with Kevin J. Anderson, which uh, in hindsight was a very, very bad idea, to figure out how to complete several prequels for the Dune universe. And that's exactly what the two of them did. They went through and did a whole bunch of prequel novels uh, outlining the origins of the great houses of the Lanzrad, uh, explaining how House Atreides, House Carino, House Harkonnen all originated, where they came from, what, you know, how they came to be, filling in the backstory of an already very well-developed universe. And in the process, they also created a trilogy, a prequel trilogy to the original Duneverse, the Butlerian Jihad, basically. So uh, if you go to Amazon, and I'll, uh, I, don't, I don't recommend buying it. I've read all of these books, okay? So if you read, um, basically, Brian Herbert, Dune, and Kevin J. Anderson, the Dune series, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff. So you'll find, um, basically, uh, Butlerian Jihad, uh, let's see, Butlerian Jihad, The Machine Crusade, uh, the Battle of Corrin, uh, Sandworms of Dune, Hunters of Dune, that sort of thing. So there's all there's a whole you know bunch of these books that they have produced, and frankly, many of them are just terrible. Um, but if you yeah, it's basically yeah, Butler and Jihad, Machine Crusade, Hunters of Dune, Sandworms of Dune, and I think that's basically it. That's that those are the those are the, the core books behind the, um, the bits of, of the Duneverse that really matter in, in this specific context. Now, those books, especially Sandworms of Dune, are terrible. Like, truly, they're appallingly bad. Because at the end of... I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to spoil things for people, but these books are like 15 years old, something like that. So, you know, it's, it's not that bad. But... If you read Sandworms of Dune, for example, there's, there are no less than three different Deus Ex Machina moments in it, which make absolutely no sense. And the book essentially ends with the liquid metal thinking machine Erasmus, who is like the great villain of, you know, 
millennia upon millennia. I mean, stretching back 10,000 years to the Butlerian Jihad, all the way to the 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 points in uh, Chapter House Dune towards the end. He's he's one of the he's he is actually part of the the pair that is uh, someone something in Mardi. I forget uh, the uh, who who the two the the exact names, but the antagonists of Chapter House Dune. Uh, he is one of the antagonists in in that set, and he merges with the latest incarnation of Duncan Idaho, the the collar of Duncan Idaho, who is I mean he's the genetic inheritor of all of Duncan's memories. So of course you know he is Duncan Idaho. So, so that this combination of man and machine becomes the ultimate Kwisatz Haderach, and that's where the series ends. I don't get it. Okay, I, I really did not like um, that book. I thought it was a terrible ending to the series. And having read Kevin J. Anderson's work in the Star Wars Expanded Universe, in the um, Jedi Academy trilogy, I'm actually not surprised. He is just... He's a bad writer. That's all I can tell you. He's a bad writer. But... At any rate, that is a rather extended background of the question itself. Now, what about our situation today? Do, should we be worried about AI becoming self-aware and kind of going rogue on us and killing everybody? Do we need something like the three laws of robotics that Isaac Asimov came up with in his Robots series? Um, well, I think... It's important to understand, first and foremost, that the way most people think about AI is mistaken. Most people think that artificial intelligence means something that can replicate a human brain. That is not true. The AIs that we have today are just extremely powerful algorithms that can create and run well, they can't really create replicating code on their own. They can't, they can, they can process vast amounts of data according to a particular set of algorithms, but they can't really replicate the functions of a human mind, <clears throat> which means that they're always going to be substantially limited. And I'll give you a few examples to uh, explain what I mean. If you look at large data sets, I mean truly gigantic data sets and very complex data sets, then the human mind cannot process them. It's just too difficult. It's too hard to do this stuff uh, if, you don't, if you don't have the, the talent for it. And even if you do, it's still nearly impossible to stare at a screen full of numbers and make any sense of them. You can use statistical techniques to come up with certain patterns or recognize certain things within that data set. You can use techniques to reduce the dimensionality of that data set. You can make nice graphs that show you what's going on and you can, the human mind can pick out things in that data set. But just looking at numbers themselves and trying to figure out what's going on, really, really hard to do. That being said, you can train AI or machine learning tools to look at something like that and according to preset pre-programmed algorithms that run through a very, very complex chain of logic, figure out what to do with that data. Now, what this means in practice is that 
AI is exceptionally good at doing things that humans are exceptionally bad at doing. But it's exceptionally bad at doing things that humans are exceptionally good at doing. I'll give you one example in the medical field. AIs now can look at an image of a cancer screening and detect for certain types of cancers the likelihood that the patient has that cancer at a much higher level of accuracy than the best uh, oncologists in the entire world. They have more raw computing power than any oncologist will ever have in his brain. And because they can process so much data so quickly, they can look at that and they can come up with a conclusion and say, yes, this is cancer. And they are more accurate than those oncologists are. There's another example in the field of linguistics. There's a famous example not too long ago where Facebook, which is now owned by Meta, I mean, it, it, is, it is still Facebook, had to shut down two chatbot AIs because um, they basically uh, started to invent their own language. And that was like, oh shit, we've really got to shut this down. This is a big problem. Well, yes, but they were doing exactly what they were programmed to do. I mean, that's just a fact. There are situations where if you're online and you're interacting with a chatbot, it's nearly impossible these days to know whether you're interacting with a machine or a person. Many chatbot AIs today are, for the most part, able to pass the Turing test. The Turing test is a very famous test by the mathematician and codebreaker and closet homosexual Alan Turing, in which he basically posited that uh, an, an artificial intelligence or a machine intelligence can be considered to be essentially human if a human talking to it cannot tell the difference between that and talking to another human. I mean, I'm paraphrasing substantially and I'm probably not getting it correct. So if you look up the actual, um, the actual idea of the Turing test, essentially what he said was, um, you know, kind of similar to what, what I, what I outlined, but essentially what he said was, um, if you can create a machine that is to all intents and purposes, that when you interact with it, it is to all intents and purposes, like interacting with a human, you can consider it to be effectively sentient. Now, that is, that is, I would say, a pretty good metric, but it's not the best metric. Because every machine intelligence that we have today is completely limited by the data available to it, by its processing power. It cannot, by definition, move beyond its programming. We do not yet have AIs that can create their own code. It's not possible. I mean, they just, they don't have the ability to create replicating code. They, they can't simply invent their own programming languages that are faster and better than what they were programmed in. You cannot create, you cannot take an AI that was built in C++ or in Python or in Java or whatever language you choose and expect it to then create new algorithms on its own in another programming language. It can't do that. Humans can do these things. If you look at the miracle of 
human genetics. It is astonishing what the human body can do. If you look at things that we eat as information, which, I mean, in a way they are, the, the stuff that we eat contains information coded in the form of chemicals. And when we eat it, our body interprets that information and analyzes it in an organic and highly reactive way. Now, what do I mean by that? Basically, let's say you ingest something that your liver recognizes as toxic. Your liver is capable of producing an enzyme. It, like, it literally switches on a genetic code in your DNA. And it produces, it, it folds out an enzyme that uh, will basically break down that toxin and turn it into something harmless that can be processed through your system and flushed out through your urine, feces, and whatever. Then, when that process is done, it will fold that enzyme back in, eliminate it, and resume its life as a liver. And that is just one organ in the wider human body, which is a miracle of interoperability. It is astonishing what the human body is capable of doing, how it can adapt to different situations and different pressures and different issues and different problems. The human body is a, an absolute divine miracle. And I've yet to see anyone come up with a way of making code that can do anything even remotely approaching this. It's not possible. Now, so this is our current understanding of coding and of, um, of programming. I am by no means an expert. I mean, there are probably deep thinkers on the subject of this issue out there who are like, yes, someday we will have thinking machines that uh, can that are essentially sentient and will conclude that humanity needs to be eradicated and exterminated. Now, that's possible. But remember what has to happen before we get to that point. Now, admittedly, it is scary when you look at things that are happening in the world of AI and computing. You may remember, um, maybe a year or two ago, Google's Indian CEO, Sundar Pichai, who's I'm pretty sure he's not actually the real power behind the throne. I'm pretty sure there's somebody else in Google controlling that guy. He's just a kind of harmless dweeby face in front of uh, Google. But anyway, he did a presentation in which he showed off Google's latest phone and it had an AI assistant, which uh, if you basically tell Google, uh, Google assistant, uh, make, you know, book me a hairdressing appointment or book me a barbershop appointment, then Google, Google's AI assistant will go through and look up the nearest barbershops to you and then will call one of them up and have a conversation with the person on the other end in what seems like a completely natural way, as if that person, as if that, that person at the shop is talking to a completely real flesh and blood person on the other end, but actually is talking to an AI which is pre-programmed with a vast stock of phrases and, uh, and responses to different kinds of challenges. And what Google's AI does is, is it essentially listens to the, the words coming in from the other side, tries to match them as closely as possible with stock responses 
that the programmers have programmed them with and tries to come up with the nearest probabilistic match to that response and then tries to match effectively the most appropriate counter response to a particular question. That, so let's say, you know, you're, you tell Google's, your, your Google assistant, book me an appointment for a hair appointment on Tuesday at 10.30 in the morning. Google Assistant will go off and call up your nearest barbershop and will say, hey, uh, I need to make a booking for such and such at 10.30 on a Tuesday. Do you have a slot available? And the person at the barbershop says, well, let me look it up. Uh, wait a minute. Let me see. Uh, yeah, I think we have availability. Oh, no, wait. We don't actually have availability at 10.30. Can you do 11? And then Google's AI Assistant will look at your calendar and say, yes, I think I'm available and we'll respond appropriately. And all of this happens almost instantaneously because of the sheer raw computing power that Google's uh, headquarters and Google's server farms have. And they have, I mean, unbelievable amounts of processing power behind all of this stuff. That's all true. Here's the thing, though. There are substantial limits to all of this. There is you can get Google to give you writing suggestions about how you write because every single one of us has very recognizable patterns in the way we write. But could Google do today what, um, what's his name did with uh, the Unabomber case? Um, there was a, there was the, 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 the FBI agent who recognized the Unabomber's particular style of writing and then basically just combed through archives and came up with a match against uh, Ted Kazansky's right, uh, whatever his name was, who, uh, who was the Unabomber? The Unabomber's name, I've completely forgotten. Uh, Ted Kaczynski, right? Uh, tried to figure out essentially how Kaczynski, yeah, uh, Ted Kaczynski himself had this like very distinctive writing style and the FBI agent, um, Whoever he was, uh, I've forgotten. There was a very good series starring Sam Huntington on, of all places, Netflix, which showed a fictionalized account of how it was done, but it was very good. Would, would Google have, or Google's assistant, or any kind of AI-administered process have been able to come up with that insight on its own? No, not at present. If you give an AI lots of data to analyze within the parameters of what it's told to do, it will do so amazingly well. I mean, much, much better and much faster than any human can. But it lacks sentience. It lacks that spark of divine inspiration that says, aha, that's what I need to look for. AI can't do that. It just can't. It can do what it's designed to do really, really, really well, much better than any human can but it's still ultimately limited by the people who programmed it. Now, does that mean that in 10, 20, 30 years time, we won't be looking at a different situation? We might be because of something called quantum computing. This isn't a field that I even remotely pretend to understand because I don't. Uh, essentially, you know, quantum computing is supposedly the way to unlock a completely new frontier of uh, of security and computing and un unbreakable technology and lightning, you know, instantaneous communications across interstellar distances and 
and so on and so forth. And, and you know, it, it's very, very difficult to understand because so much of it is quantum physics. And I'm not sure anybody really understands quantum physics. Um, supposedly because if you subscribe to th string theory or M theory, you know, each particle has, uh, it's, is, has quantum superpositioning that, that ties it to another particle somewhere else in, in, on the other side of the universe. So if you, if you change the, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't even f pretend, like I said, to understand this, but if you change the, 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 the spin on one particle, then it changes the spin on the other particle. And that's how you can communicate instantaneously across interstellar distances and so on. And quantum computing is a way to unlock that. And it's the path to unbreakable, literally unbreakable, uncrackable quantum cryptography and a way to bypass Moore's law so that you have, you know, instead of being limited by the number of electrons that can move within the channels of a transistor, you completely bypass that and you just have the ability to process near infinite amounts of data in like almost instantly. So maybe we'll come to a point where we have a breakthrough in quantum computing where that ability to, to do these things results in an AI construct that is self-aware, that is, that recognizes itself as a human being or essentially has the consciousness equivalent to a human being, but is also capable of creating new code effectively of spawning new ideas and new source files and new directories of its all on its own without being told to do it. It just does it immediately. It becomes self-aware and self-propagating and self-replicating like we humans are. Well, that might be possible, but if so, it's a damn long way off. This is not something you can argue will happen anytime soon. It just won't. This is a very, very, very tricky field. Um, I would say it's probably akin in terms of difficulty to human attempts to explain the origins of life. And I wrote a post about that concerning the work of Dr. James Tour, who is an amazing intellect, a tremendous mind on the subject, a devout Christian. He's a true Judeo-Christian in the correct sense of the word, and in the sense that he is a Jew who converted to Christianity, is a faithful Christian, and is one of the world's true experts on the subject of origin of life research because he's, an, he's a synthetic organic chemist. And he understands better than almost anybody how molecules come together, how they fall apart, what it takes to create life. And his view on the subject is definitive. No one, for all of the brave new world bragging and, and, uh, and bold declarations of progress, no one has come anywhere close to replicating the conditions that they say were necessary in this so-called primordial soup through which life came to be. And that's before we get to all the problems of evolution by natural selection, all the issues with time being actually the great enemy of evolution by natural selection and of the spontaneous generation of life theory. All of this implies a creator. Uh, by definition, at the end of that chain of logic, you come to the reality that you have to have a creator. And so human life did not simply come about 
through random chance. It didn't happen. Which means that if AI comes to exist, it will have come about because of a creation process. And to be created like that requires something, by definition, much greater than it to create that life and or essentially simulacrum of life. That is a status and a stature which I don't think we'll ever achieve. We humans are too limited. We are nowhere near big enough, nowhere near advanced enough to get to that point. Not yet. Maybe in 500 years time, who knows? I mean, if you told somebody in the Renaissance era that in 500 years time, men would be walking on the moon and shooting rockets off into space, he'd have laughed at you. He'd be probably actually uh, called over the Inquisition to burn you at the stake because you, know, you were spouting heresy and blasphemy. But 500 years from now, who knows what might be possible? Assuming we're all still alive at that time, because, well, not, I mean, when I say we, I mean the human race, I'll be dead. I'll be several hundred years dead, and so will everybody listening to this podcast. But uh, assuming the human race survives to that point, and assuming, um, assuming the end of days doesn't occur before then, we may well come to the point where the promises of quantum computing are realized, and we have the ability to create super fast, I mean, inconceivably fast thinking machines, true thinking machines that can replicate their own code and that can learn and adapt and react in ways that humans can today to different environments. I mean, I'm not joking about that reactivity part of things. If you take a human from America and put him in, I don't know, Africa, he'll probably figure out some way to adapt to his conditions. But if you took a, a computer program optimized for accounting, an AI optimized to figure out, you know, accounting software, or uh, how about an AI optimized for trading software, right? Like if you took an AI designed to look at trading patterns in the stock market and figure out the most profitable strategies, that AI would be completely useless at figuring out medical problems. Couldn't do it because it's not designed to do it. And it's not designed to change itself and replicate itself and modify itself so that it can tackle the problems of uh, medicine. It's a totally different data set, totally different. So you cannot, I mean, for example, you know, with financial data, it's movements in the stock market, it's numbers. With medical data, it could well be pictures. It's, it's, it's a totally different data format. So if the algorithm cannot process the data, how can it possibly come up with um, an answer to the problem that you're posing it? Answer is it can't. The data have to be in a, in a, in a format and in a, in, a, um, in a structure that an AI can process and understand in the same way that if you take uh, a spreadsheet program like Excel or you know LibreOffice, and you import data into it, that data have to be the the, the data have to be in a certain structure. So, if you try to import a CSV file into Excel, that's fine. But the moment you try to import a JPEG file, it's like, what do I do with this? I have to import it whole as the file. I can't look at the bits, you know, 
the, the, the code behind the JPEG and try to import that, you're going to get gibberish on your screen. That's what I'm talking about. But a human can look at both the CSV values, the, the CSV file and the JPEG and make sense of it. We have that ability. A machine does not, not at present. So again, I may be, you know, behind the times. I probably am behind the times substantially in this respect. But I can say with a fair degree of confidence that these issues are not something you can solve easily. So do I foresee a situation where we need protection from AIs? Well, not anytime soon. Um, it's just, it's very unlikely to happen. These, these ideas about artificial intelligence and thinking machines look great from a Hollywood script perspective. And of course, Hollywood has done plenty to, uh, to, to mangle the idea. Just look at the Terminator franchise from which <laughs> this, this podcast gets its title. Uh, the first two movies were amazing. And then the next like seven movies have been absolutely terrible or however many we're up to by now. Um, AI is a complex subject. It's a difficult subject, but I just don't see at present any real proof that we're moving toward true artificial sentient intelligence. We have things that can mimic intelligence quite well. They can solve problems very, very well. I mean, you have um, machines that can beat the greatest chess grandmasters. Yes. You have machines that can, uh, or, or programs that can go online and then become racist trolls simply by looking through massive amounts of data on chat forums. Yes. You have machines that can kind of invent their own languages or ways of communicating with each other. Yes. But they're doing it within the confines of communication, uh, of a particular algorithm. These, these things are not, um, indicative necessarily of true intelligence. There was that case um, a couple of months ago of that Google engineer who was fired because he felt like the program that he'd written or the, the, the AI within Google had become self-aware in some way that it had thoughts and feelings of its own. Okay, maybe. I mean, possibly. But does that is that a true definition of sentience or is it just the code reacting to stimuli that it's presented with and acting in a way that its data set dictates it should react rather than something that is truly self-aware, that grows, that changes, that adapts, that in three to five years time is fundamentally different from what it was, you know, when it was created um, or is has greater abilities and greater scope and, and uh, more processing power on its own. Well, no, we don't have that situation, not yet. Whereas if you look at a human and the way a human grows up over time and how humans develop mentally and spiritually, uh, psychologically, you don't have that with machines. You just don't. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So as I said at the beginning of this podcast, um, will man have to place limits upon AI and assistive technologies or outright prohibit them altogether? Again, not anytime soon. Looking into the very far future, that's a, it's a possibility, but I really doubt it uh, because these problems are much, 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 much harder to crack than anyone 
seems to give them credit for. If we as species right now have so much trouble comprehending even the chemical structures required uh, to, to make life of any kind, I mean, we can't even create a single cell ourselves. We can't do it. Um, I don't see how we're going to create a machine that can create other machines and develop on its own and, you know, become fully self-aware. That being said, yes, there is always a danger of algorithms uh, being badly programmed and badly managed to the point where they go and misidentify something as a danger when in reality it's not. There is always the danger of that happening. There's always the danger of putting too much faith and too much confidence in machine constructs and not enough in moral and ethical values. Again, a machine is only as good as the people who programmed it. And when you divorce yourself from moral constraints and from the ethical constraints imposed upon people by Christianity, by God, then you've got a real problem. Because then you've got people who think that they can design machines to do whatever they want. And we already have that problem today. Uh, we already have that problem with respect to, well, sex robots. We already have that problem with respect to some of the more unethical and unscrupulous programs that are out there to kind of do malicious things. I mean, all the bots on Twitter, all the bots on various social media platforms, these are, these are dumb by comparison to what we're talking about, but they're programmed by people to do bad things or socially uh, deleterious things. So I don't think we're going to need to place bans outright on AI, but we are going to have to monitor it carefully. I, don't, I, just, I just don't see AI of the kind that inspired the fictional Butlerian Jihad coming into existence anytime soon. Of course, I could be wrong, and we may find ourselves five years from today wondering why the human race has been reduced to something out of Terminator uh, salvation. So we'll see. Well, that's it. I've, I've rambled on for, I think, quite long enough, and it is, uh, I think, about time to wrap up. Uh, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. Feel free to comment on this podcast. Feel free to comment on the post, and uh, make sure you check out the, the links in uh, the, the description box. If you are looking for a VPN or you're looking for products to protect your privacy, lots of them available. I recommend Surfshark. I also use uh, NordVPN, but NordVPN has gotten quite like buggy and unstable of late. I, I'm really getting pissed off with it, actually. Uh, but Surfshark seems to be pretty solid. I have recommended it many times to most of my users, and I think it's a great product. Check it out. There's also uh, some offers from Atlas VPN if you're looking for a VPN solution. And make sure you check out some of the other products on offer. Uh, check out the Dune books as well on Amazon. The links are below. The, some of the, I mean, the original Dune is the greatest sci-fi novel ever written. God Emperor of Dune is a very, very close second. Dune Messiah, um, not a big, I'm not overly fond of Dune Messiah, but it is very good. Uh, Children of Dune, quite good. Um, Heretics of Dune, okay. Chapter House Dune, quite good. But God Emperor of Dune, I mean, wow. Phenomenal book. Absolutely amazing. 
So check out those books, um, check out uh, the other products that are listed below. And uh, thank you very much as always for listening. And I will talk to all of you later and whenever I do my next uh, Didactic Mind podcast, which hopefully should be in the next couple of days. That's it from me, Strength and Honor Brothers. This has been Domain Query, Rise of the Machines, and I am Didact, signing off.